Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Kathy Young. Kathy Young is one of my favorite journalists around today. You can find her work at The Bulwark and at Reason Magazine. This episode is all about the war in Ukraine. Now, it's an unusually dense episode, but I really recommend you pay attention because Kathy is just a wealth of information. We spend the first half hour discussing the modern history of Russia, from the dissolution of the Soviet Union, where Kathy spent her childhood and her young adulthood, to the Yeltsin era and the rise of Putin. We spend the next half hour or so discussing the recent history of Ukraine, from the Orange Revolution in 2004-2005 to the Euromaidan protests and the Revolution of Dignity. We go on to discuss the alleged role of NATO expansion in creating this crisis, the role of Kremlin propaganda, the alleged presence of Nazis in Ukrainian leadership, American hypocrisy in foreign policy. We discuss the disanalogy between the war in Iraq and the war in Ukraine. We discuss the cancellation of everything Russian, the prospect of NATO intervention in Ukraine, the concept of nuclear blackmail, and more. So without further ado, Kathy Young. All right, Kathy Young, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan, as you know. Yeah, likewise, I've been reading you for years, and I think I've met you more than once at different events around New York. Yeah, I think we met at like we met at a Reason Happy Hour. We once. met at a Reason Happy Hour. That's right. And I also saw you at a Salman Rushdie event a oh, few years ago. Right. That's right. I think we also met at like a Heterodox Academy event or something. I mean, we we hang out on these same like you yeah. know free speech, yes. heterodox, uh, you know, enlightened centrist. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, and I'm. I'm always happy to see you, though it's been a while, and I'm always happy to read you. You are um, truly one of my favorite writers and journalists, and it, oh, it just well, seems like you. whatever you write about, no matter how varied the topic, your takes are always so reasonable and careful and beautifully written. Um, and oh, I, I think, really appreciate it. Yeah. So yeah, I also I don't know if you saw I did a piece about the you know well it was wasn't specifically about that but uh, yeah I did a piece about like Charles Murray and the whole race IQ debate mm. and I a good part of it was about the interview that you did with him which I thought was really great. Oh, actually, I'm actually not sure that I saw that. Oh, I have to send you that. Yeah, yeah because please do. like I thought that was such a great interview and you. Mm found just the right tone and and i think you know like you asked all the right questions and you know i, I mean i don't want us to spend like a whole lot of this uh, you know a, lot, a good part of this uh interview like fangirling over each other but, <laughs> uh, uh but you know i really want to say like 
thank you for like not going off the deep end in the last two years because there are so many people that I used to think fairly highly of who have just like I don't know what's happened to them. I'm not going to name any names, but I'm sure we all know like who yeah who, who we're talking about. But like there there are people who have just undergone this evolution that I find both baffling and profoundly upsetting. It's like you used to be sane. What happened to you? Like <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. There's definitely been a the influence of conspiracy thinking and yeah. Um, Along with just the normal dynamics of falling down rabbit holes that people, yeah, and I think, yeah, and like this whole like the, the the you know anti-establishment contrarianism, mm-hmm. and I think we're probably going to go into a little bit of that right when we get to talking about Ukraine. Yeah, there's a whole like line of thinking that is basically well, if the mainstream media says uh, says Putin is wrong, then you know I have. To to think that there's probably something <laughs> anyway. Yeah, uh, so no, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to all of that. But um, but you, anyway, yeah, it's really great to be here. Yeah, um, it's great yeah. to have you. You you wrote this beautiful piece in the Bulwark recently about partly about your own upbringing in Soviet Russia, your emigration out of Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. and um, the fall of communism and what that meant to Russians and the the 90s and the, the pre-Putin era and and the whole modern history of Russia that is crucial to understand in order to understand what's going on right now in Ukraine. So I wonder if we can sort of go back, partly you can explain who you are and where you're from, and also explained what it meant to you to be, to be to grow up in the Soviet Russia. Yeah, I was born in uh, the Soviet Union um, in uh, Moscow. I actually wrote a book about my childhood called "Growing Up in Moscow," and it was kind of interesting because my book came out in '89, and one of my concerns was that it was going to be dated, and like, and I think partly, I mean, it didn't do badly, but I think it didn't do as well as it could have precisely because like the, the general sense was, well, you know, like it's, it's kind of dated, you know, it's because I was talking about growing up in this totalitarian society where the, the, there was a uh, very distinct kind of doctrine of uh, what you were supposed to believe, like what you were taught in school was the only right way of, you know, seeing things. And uh, generally, there was this, uh, um, you know, very, very rigidly controlled society in in many ways. Uh, And other things like the the, the, uh, kind of Iron Curtain that separated from the West, where, you know, everything that came from the West was the object of sort of intense fascination, but it was also this forbidden fruit in many ways. And all of that was really becoming in many ways just um, sort of no longer relevant because things, because it was 1989 and things really were changing very rapidly. I was around that time, as I mentioned on the Bulwark piece, I also um, traveled uh, to Moscow several times. Uh, as a journalist, well, I mean, both as a journalist and as a sort of ex um, ex uh, Soviet citizen, because I mean, I still had family there, most of whom, by the way, later ended up in 
various parts of the world, you know, from Canada to Israel to Australia. Uh, so uh, at the time, I still had um, a fair amount of um, uh, family and friends there. And uh, just the, observing the society in the midst of this amazing change that was taking place was really, really quite fascinating. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things that was very heartening and is kind of depressing to think about, you know, today when things are kind of in so many ways uh, sort of like turning back, uh, one of the remarkable things was to observe the lifting of this um, sort of fog of fear that used to hang over everything because, you know, it really was. And, you know, the time when I was growing up, you know, the, the, uh, the 1970s, it wasn't nearly as bad as some other periods in Soviet history had been. My parents told me stories about the Stalin era. Um, my father's parents had actually been on the gulag. Um, my uh, mother knew a bunch of people whose, um, you know, relatives or, you know, parents had also been imprisoned, uh, sometimes over, like, you know, a completely innocuous remark that somebody misunderstood. It, during my uh, time when I was growing up, you probably didn't, uh, like, have, um, have much of a risk of getting in trouble unless you were like, uh, actively opposing or trying to oppose the system. But at the same time, people were definitely afraid of people who were critical of the regime were definitely afraid of, uh, you know, talking about it to someone they didn't know very well. Um, or, you know, or even to people they knew, because somebody that you knew could turn out to be an informer, um, as we know from the history of East Germany, where they opened up the Stasi files, it turned out that, you know, there was this huge army of informers, um, uh, you know, uh, unbeknownst to most of the people who knew them. And it was really just amazing to see this sort of fear-based society evolve out of that and people uh, talking freely about um, the, the need to reform the system, people talking freely about even things like the history of Stalinism, which had been sort of kept very hush-hush. Uh, during the era when I was growing up. Um, I mean, I got to go to, um, you know, rallies where people were demanding change. Uh, and the, the, there were demands, like at the time, the Soviet constitution still stipulated that the Communist Party um, had a sort of formally, you know, enshrined uh, leadership role in the political life of the country, which essentially meant like there was no multi-party system. That was the only party that was formally allowed a place in, in the political structure. And a lot of people at the time were demanding that this article in the Constitution be repealed. And I'm not even sure, you know, whether it actually ended up being repealed or it just went when, you know, because soon after that, the Soviet Union collapsed and there was no Soviet constitution anymore. So, you know, I think it may have just become a moot point, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But at the same, at the time, there was, uh, there were demands for a multi-party system. There were, uh, you know, uh, there, there was very intense questioning of the sort of state socialism model and, uh, uh, you know, demands to allow uh, private enterprise, uh, 
uh, I mean, all sorts of things were percolating. You know, there there was questioning of uh, the, the a lot of like really intense exploration of Soviet history in in, in the media. Um, a lot of interest, of course, in everything uh, you know from the West. I mean, things were being published. Uh, you know, like uh, Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago, which was basically this very very exhaustive study of the state terror during the Stalin era, which had once been like very, very strictly forbidden and um, and now was being openly published. Um, a lot of literature like that. Um, so yeah, there was just this tremendous sense of everything being opened up. One of the things that I discuss in the, in my Bulwark piece is that even you know things like um, Western films, which once had been sort of allowed to trickle in a little bit, and usually a fairly long time after their release in the West, so people were really kind of cut off from this sort of global um, popular culture in a sense. Now that was changing. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember seeing, uh, this is 1990, I remember seeing Laptam Nikita. I don't know if you saw that. This was like, at the time, it was a um, uh, kind of French um, a French thriller that was kind of sexy and violent. And it was the sort of thing that you know, the Soviet Union had once pretty much banned as, you know, decadent bourgeois stuff. And, uh, you know, now now this was actually playing on on uh, the screens in the Soviet Union. So, yeah, there was this, again, this uh, sense that all of the old barriers were, were being lifted. And, you know, I, I probably the culmination of this was when I went, uh, this was on my second trip in October of 1990, I went with um, this guy who was a young Russian journalist who invited me to, to, to this um, protest march. And it was massive. It was like, I, I don't know how many people were there. I think it must have been like at least 100,000. At least that, you know, those are the estimates I saw. But it was just this endless mass of people marching down uh, one of the biggest avenues in you know, it, it just really marched through pretty much like all of downtown Moscow. And there were the, you know, people were carrying slogans. And the, the, I, I think it was just a, a kind of collection of various demands uh, from the pro-democracy movement, including the repeal of this Article 6 of the Soviet Constitution that uh, made the Communist Party kind of the, the, uh, the, the guiding political force. But there were all sorts of other, you know, the, the people had a, a lot of these you know, different placards and slogans. And there was just this a really immense kind of sense of people power, this immense sense of you know, change, uh, a sense that, uh, you know, freedom was uh, sort of the new, you know, the, the new order of the day. And um, uh, and it was really, really exciting to be a part of that even on the sidelines. Unfortunately, I didn't, I don't have any really good pictures from that day because it was kind of um, cloudy and gray and I didn't, and my camera was not very good. So like all the pictures I took eventually turned out really blurry. And, and of course this was before digital cameras. So, you know, to, to, to see what your pictures looked like, you actually had to like take them to get the film developed. Right. So anyway, yeah, but it was, it was the, this really, really amazing amount. So, so, so how did, uh, you know the the attitude towards the West in the nineties. 
seemed far more open and and positive, but by the late aughts, that had totally shifted. Yeah, yeah. Why, why yeah, did Russia was, turn against the West? Right, right. Well, that was, uh, yeah, that was one of the things that happened. Um, and I mean, the, the attitude toward the West, like in the, in the early 90s, um, uh, I mean, it was in in a sense, it was a kind of idolatry almost, and you know, it was, and the West was this uh, promised land, really, where you know, where people wanted uh, wanted a life uh, that was kind of similar to what they saw, and and then you know, at that time, some people were beginning to travel because before that, you know, travel had been extremely extremely strictly regulated. Um, and you really had to be sort of like one of the trusted, you know, people, Communist Party member in good standing, probably, uh, you know, outside of a really small number of like high level artists and you know people like that who were allowed to travel. Uh, but this is when people were beginning to travel. And of course, uh, you know, the Western media were becoming uh, uh, fully accessible. And yeah, there was this, there really was a tremendous sense of admiration of just a sense that, um, and, you know, one thing that I mentioned in, in the bulwark is that one of the, um, one uh, type of comment that you heard very frequently was that we we want a normal life. And I think that was sort of associated with what people felt the, the, the average person had in the West. Which was, you know, a life of, you know, material comfort, a life where you could basically, you know, uh, buy things you wanted without standing in line for <laughs> for two hours, and you know, without having to run from one store to another until you finally found, um, well, not everything you wanted, but at least a good uh, a good portion of it. Um, you know, it was a life where you could read and watch and, you know, listen to whatever you wanted without being afraid of retaliation by the state. Uh, a life where you uh, really where you could sort of, you know, live, you know, live for the sake of just living and for, for you know, live for your own sake, so to speak. And, you know, live, uh, just have a private life, enjoy your job, enjoy your friends and not you know, not be pressured into at least pretending to serve some sort of grand ideological cause, which had been the case in the Soviet Union, where you had to, like every working person, uh, every college student had to attend these weekly like political sessions where you had to, you know, listen to stuff about the struggle of the proletariat and the, uh, you know, the evils of the capitalist West, and you had to applaud on cue and, you know, just sort of, you know, even if you weren't a uh, loyal uh, Soviet citizen, you had to at least pretend to be one. And then periodically, uh, I think during various crises, uh, you know, like during the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, for instance, in 1968, when um, the Soviets basically invaded Czechoslovakia to suppress more... Um, more democratic kind of socialism that they were trying to have over there. It, people, uh, and this was interesting because they really were kind of trying to create this universal complicity in what the regime was doing. Like people, um, and practically, again, you know, every workplace, every college were required to attend these uh, meetings uh, where they had to vote for resolutions approving of and, you know, supporting what the government had done. So it's like every, uh, really every adult 
had to, uh, you know, ostensibly at least express his or her support for the actions of the government. And, you know, so that was the sort of thing that, uh, you know, that kind of routinely happened in, in the Soviet Union. And I think part of this desire for a normal life was, again, just the the desire to really to be left alone and to be able to just, you know, have your own life, which didn't mean that, you know, you had to be apolitical, but, you know, you, you know, people felt like they wanted to be able to like be political if they wanted to be. And if they didn't care about it, that they just wanted to be able to, you know, have a job and um, have a comfortable life, enjoy their entertainment, enjoy their, you know, friends and family. And, uh, and that was it. And I think that was the, desire for normality. And, and it was very, very much associated with the sense of, you know, this is how people live in the West. You said that by, you know, by the end of the oh, right, Bush right. era, it's sort of, this had totally turned. Well, no, not, not really by, uh, by the end of the Bush era. Do you mean the first Bush? The second the Bush era. Oh, the second Bush. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it was, uh, I mean, the, the, the relationship was really complicated because during the, uh, the Yeltsin era, when it was, you know, Boris Yeltsin in, uh, in Russia uh, as first president of the free post-communist Russia, and it, at the time it was built in, in, uh, in the United States. And, you know, they had a sort of, you know, friendly relationship, you know, which in many ways was kind of viewed as a symbol of this new partnership between the United States and this democratic post-communist Russia. Things were not really like were not always smooth because I think one of the and in many ways this kind of anticipated some of the later conflicts the uh, like the U.S. and NATO intervention in Yugoslavia uh, was kind of a sore point because at the time there was already this sort of resurgent uh, Russian nationalism. Uh, not on the part of Yeltsin himself, uh, really, so much as, uh, you know, a lot of the people around him, a lot of the people who got elected to the Duma, the Russian parliament, uh, which uh, ended up having a very sort of illiberal majority that was made up of communists on the one hand and, you know, sort of almost really quasi-fascist nationalists on the other. So that certainly created a lot of complications. And this was when I think 1997 was when you, when there were the first signs really of uh, the Russian-American relationship kind of going sour over um, over uh, events in the former Yugoslavia, then it kind of things um, righted themselves kind of again. And I think by the by the end of the Yeltsin era, and you know by the end of the Clinton era, um, things were kind of seemed to be on track again. And then of course we had the rise of Vladimir Putin, and uh, yeah, again I don't want to go into like all of the historical details of his relationship with George W. Bush because you know it was it was complicated, and uh, and I think yeah, I, I, again I don't know if you remember like the, 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 there was a famous incident when Bush uh, made a comment about how he looked in Putin's eyes. Do you know that story? Yeah, yeah, and I, I could tell. Yeah, he and was where a he Christian said he saw like he saw he got a sense of a soul and like he felt that Putin was a really good man. He was wearing a crucifix or something, and that was important. To yeah, Bush. yeah. And he told Bush the story, and, and that really made me laugh because, I mean, you know, I, I think you really have to like totally not understand anything about the Soviet Union to fall for this story, which, which Bush did, which, uh, you know, a bunch of other people did, I think. But he told the story that uh, like he was baptized 
as a child and his mother gave him a cross and he wore it like under his clothes his entire life, including when he was serving in the KGB. And I just really do not buy that for a second because like, uh, like the level of spying on each other, like, because Putin joined the KGB when he was young. And I mean, if he had been wearing, and at the time, by the way, religion, like during the entire, pretty much the entire Soviet period until the very final years, uh, religion was considered like absolutely toxic. It was sort of tolerated grudgingly uh, and not even, not, not all religions, but I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church, at least, was kind of allowed to exist. And it's a complicated story because most of the senior Clerics were also recruited by the KGB. So, I mean, it was just, and I think that they also, the Soviets also used the churches to uh, kind of co opt the peace movements, uh, sort of for their own goals and promote like Western disarmament. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, the, 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 the church was ostensibly allowed to exist, but it was incredibly like frowned upon. Like I, my mother remembers that uh, my mother was wasn't well still is, you know a piano teacher. And at one point, um, uh, the mother of a former student of hers called her and said, "You know, I really want to talk to you about something. Like my daughter has started going to church, and her daughter by then was was in college, and her who had studied you know piano with my mother at, at the high school level." And, and she said, you know, can't you talk to her? Like, if they find out about this at the university, she's going to get expelled because, you know, like, this is really, really horrible because it was just going to church was really like regarded or, or wearing a cross for that matter was really regarded as a sign that like you weren't entirely on board with like the Soviet philosophy and, you know, the Soviet ideology and agenda, which was officially atheistic and very hostile to religion. So, like, for, for someone who was working on the KGB to, like, even no matter how secretly to wear a cross, there was always a chance that somebody was going to find out somehow, mm. especially since, you know, they, I, the, 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 they had a gym, they had, like, a swimming pool at, for, for, for staff members, there was always a chance that somebody was going to find out and somebody was going to report you. So, I mean, this idea that Putin worked at the KGB all those years, like wearing a cross and secretly being a Christian, is completely preposterous, you know. And uh, and then he also had the story of how, uh, you know, supposedly, like, at one point, his country cottage burned down and like the only thing that survived was the cross and that just really reinforced him and the belief that yes you know god is real and like come on i mean like, mm. this is just uh, i mean again i don't think any uh, i don't know anyone who like, really like knows anything about the history of the kjb who would believe that for a second and i remember there, there, there there's a um a great um russian commentator named yulia latinina who, who is still writing. I think she's actually not living in Russia anymore at this point. But at the time, she wrote something very funny to the effect that, like, so, uh, you know, Putin really knew his audience. So he knew that, you know, religion was really important to Bush. And, you know, Bush really was like a, a very strong Christian. So this is the story he told Bush. And she said, I'm sure that if he had been talking to, like, you know, a Jewish guy who has strong beliefs about, you know, strong feelings about being Jewish, Putin would have told him that, like, 
you know, his childhood mentor was a rabbi who like, forever impressed him with the wisdom of Judaism mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, gave him a star of David pendant. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this was um, a sort of a part of this um, fairly brief, I think, um, Putin-Bush friendship. And eventually, I, I think the, the, the turning point really was because I, I, I've seen some people suggest that like the 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 the, the Russian the US, the U.S. Russian friendship went sour because of the invasion of Iraq. I don't think that's quite the case because uh, you know I mean Russia had a well and the Soviet Union before that had a fairly close relationship with Saddam Hussein. So in a sense, Iraq really was kind of like a client state a little bit. So I, I, I think. Partly, that was one reason that uh, that uh, Russia opposed the, the the U.S. invasion. But if you look at what Putin was actually doing at the time, uh, well, Putin and um, uh, the Russian diplomatic corps, I think they were kind of trying to play it very carefully. Where they were, they voted against the invasion on the Security Council, but they they really didn't stake out at the time a sort of anti-American position. And one thing that was really interesting to me, and I still really wonder like what sort of game uh, Putin was trying to play at the time. But I remember that uh, several months after the invasion, Putin actually made a statement to the effect that Russian intelligence had data uh, showing that Saddam Hussein had been like implicated in the plotting of uh, September 11th. And now I don't even know whether that was true or not. I mean, I think that was Putin making an overture to uh, like to the Americans showing that they were kind of sort of maybe on board with, you know, what they were doing in Iraq. And uh, it was kind of interesting because Putin said that um, Russian intelligence had turned over that data to the Americans. And I think there were people in American intelligence who basically said, you know, that never happened. <laughs> so, but But that was sort of, Putin trying to show that he's, uh, you know, he was on our side. Um, and uh, the, the real turning point, uh, and this is really relevant to what's happening today, uh, was the color, you know, the orange revolution in Ukraine in uh, 2004-2005. Because what happened at the time was that uh, Ukraine had had a sort of pro-Russia leadership that was uh, not entirely like Soviet style, of course, but it was kind of like mildly authoritarian and it really didn't cross any, it crossed Russia in anything. Uh, so the president of uh, Ukraine, uh, Leonid Kuchma at the time, had completed his term. I, I think they, they, they had term limits, so he, he couldn't run for re-election. Uh, there was a pro-Russian candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, who was running, who was, uh, you know, kind of Putin's personal buddy, I think. Think, and who uh, I think flew to Moscow like seven times during his campaign to meet personally with Putin. And Putin visited uh, Ukraine twice during that election. This was 2004, you know, showing his support for Yanukovych. And Yanukovych was being opposed by a pro-Western uh, candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, who wanted Ukraine. Uh, I don't know that there was much question of Ukraine joining NATO at the time. He may have sort of expressed support for it. I don't know that that was like a, something that was really in the cards at that point, 
but he was definitely pro like Ukraine joining the EU. Uh, and he basically signaled that he wanted to have a friendly relationship with both the EU and Russia. But of course, that didn't sit well with Putin, who wanted Ukraine to be like, completely in the Russian camp. And one thing that happened at that point was that during the campaign, Yushchenko uh, was poisoned. Uh, like he nearly died from what turned out to be dioxin poisoning. And now there, no one ever like found any conclusive evidence that it was uh, Russia. You know that Russia was involved in that, but that was certainly the. Uh, it is funny how politicians Putin dislikes uh, yeah, end up getting yeah. poisoned so often. Yeah, yeah, and that was I think that that was the first one I think where that really kind of made waves because of course you know that was the candidate for the president of Ukraine so that's a pretty big deal and uh eventually I mean he recovered he uh, but it, again like he was very very close to dying and uh, I think he was fairly outspoken about the fact that he believed the problem this so then the election happened, and the, uh, the I, I guess the the electoral commission or you know whatever they have certifying votes in, in Ukraine uh, declared Yanukovych the pro-Putin candidate to be the winner, despite the fact that like all of the polls, uh, including like polls taken on the day of the election, Yushchenko winning by like a ten percent you know ten percentage points margin. And at that point, there was just this huge upsurge of popular anger where people uh, came out on the, the, the Maidan. And by the way, Maidan in, in Ukrainian just means square. And that was, uh, this is like the central square in Kiev, um, which is, uh, you know, the, which is known as Maidan Nizalezhnitsi, which means independent square. So, but it, it's just sort of come to be known as the Maidan in the popular, uh, popular discourse. So uh, there were protests that continued for uh, like three weeks straight. I mean, the people just, you know, camped out on the square and they adopted the color orange as uh, like they, they wore orange ribbons. So, you know, hence those became known as the Orange Revolution. And um, Putin was extremely unhappy about this. Um, I believe there's... Um, uh, you know, it's been reported by Kuchma himself, this is the outgoing president, that Putin sort of suggested to him that he should use troops to clear the square, which, you know, to his credit, Kuchma refused to do. So, you know, it was this, uh, you know, these massive, massive protests demanding a recount. And eventually, um, the Supreme Court of Ukraine intervened and, you know, reviewed, um, you know, there was a recount. They reviewed the votes and they basically said, you know, there, there, there was some evidence of tampering. They really couldn't at that point even, you know, figure out who had really won the election because I think they felt like the entire process of ballot counting had been, had been so corrupted that, you know, some ballots may have been tampered with. So they basically said, we're going to have a new vote, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable. And they had a new vote, and this time Yushchenko won, uh, I think, by about like eight to ten percentage points. Uh, so that was the you know color revolution in Ukraine, and Putin was absolutely furious, uh, partly because he really believed that this uh, uh, you know what happened was a sort of Western and specifically American plot. Now the reason, um, well, I don't want to say the reason, but the pretext for him to believe that was that the like some of the groups that were involved in the protest 
were these you know, pro-democracy and voter integrity groups that had received funding from the National Endowment for Democracy in the U.S., which, you know, I mean, the, the, the NAD wasn't like specifically giving money to groups that had an anti-Yanukovych agenda. They were giving money to, you know, groups that were advocating for, again, like election integrity and for like clean elections. But those were the groups that were involved in the pressure for a recount. And uh, I think the, the, the lesson that Putin got from that, and I think I, I remember someone, some uh, Russian commentator whom I interviewed, uh, or maybe even like more than more than one person have said to me that Putin, like uh, basically like Putin has this KGB mentality. And part of that mentality is the belief that like all popular, like, they, they really don't believe that there is such a thing as as a grassroots move. Like they really believe that everything that happens, like all of the, you know, supposedly grassroots activity that happens is really engineered by someone else. Like, you know, they really don't believe in the agency of like ordinary people. Uh, so they believe that anything that happens on the grassroots uh, really must be the result of plotting and, you know, financing by some sort of, you know, insidious forces. Uh, in right. This and, and this, this whole, this whole dynamic got re- reprised during the revolution of dignity in 2014. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Victoria Newland, you know, ha- a leaked phone call of her talking to the U S ambassador about who they wanted to replace Yanukovych. Um, oh, right, right. Which no doubt fed those paranoid thoughts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me, yeah, because we're, we're sort of fast forwarding here just to, to explain very briefly. For yeah, you, you rewind know and that you, can, background. you can get there. Uh, so, the, it's the, so Yushchenko, the pro-Western guy, became president in 2004. Then, you know, there was a lot of chaos in leadership. Like there were several people including, you know, Yushchenko and his prime minister really couldn't work together. So the, the, this new pro-Western leadership wasn't very successful. Mm. And I think, you know, there, it may have been partly because, you know, Putin was actively trying to undermine it. So in, 2000, um, in 2010, Yanukovych got elected. Uh, this, this is the pro-Russian guy who originally ran in 2004. So this time he actually got elected and, you know, Putin was happy thinking that, you know, he got his pro-Russian, you know, buddy in Kiev and Ukraine was going to be like, was going to get get with the program again and, uh, you know, be the sort of satellite state that he wanted it to be. And um, the thing, though, is that Yanukovych was able to win by rebranding himself as a more pro-Western candidate. And he actually promised like one of his campaign promises was that he was going to sign a trade deal with the EU that many people saw as putting Ukraine uh, essentially on a track toward EU membership. And in late 2013, as a result of pressure by Putin, Yanukovych went back on that deal very abruptly and announced that instead he was going to join a trade uh, um, sort of union with Russia. Uh, because Russia was trying to set up its own kind of trade alliance or, you know, block with Ukraine and Belarus. And Yanukovych announced that he was going to join that instead of uh, signing the EU trade deal. 
And that was when, again, you know, like people were extremely like, including a lot of people who had voted for him were incensed. And, you know, and again, you know, there were these massive, massive protests on the Maidan uh, that continued for over a month. And uh, this, uh, uh, like these protests came to be known as the Euro Maidan because, you know, they were associated with this you know, anger over the non-signing of the European trade deal. And they were also known as, as you said, the revolution of dignity. Now, uh, this is where the, the, this Victoria Newland phone call comes in, because I think what people don't realize, because uh, like, in a way, like if, if you just listen to that phone call, and this was um, uh, Victoria Newland, who at the time was um, assistant secretary, um, assistant uh, secretary of state, so she was somebody from the State Department, and she was talking to Jeffrey Pyatt, who was the U.S. ambassador in Kiev, and this got intercepted and, you know, leaked. <laughs> and if you listen to it, like, sort of out of context, it really sounds like, yeah, like they're plotting a, you know, some sort of coup, like they're, they're talking about installing the next government of Ukraine. And, you know, ostensibly, it, you can easily make it out to be something sort of very insidious. Uh, when you know the context, the context is that at the time, the U.S. was one of several countries, along with, I think, France and Germany, uh, that were brokering a deal. Like, this was quite out in the open. Like, they were helping the protesters uh, broker a deal with Yanukovych about, you know, a, a essentially, a, 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 you know, a peaceful transfer of power because Yanukovych had basically agreed to hold a new election. Uh, and I think a new election was going to happen sometime fairly soon anyway, but he basically just agreed to move it, you know, move it up by several months. And there is very little doubt that, you know, he would not have been reelected. So essentially, the, the, this conversation between Newland and Pyatt was really not something underhanded. I mean, they were talking about part of what they were doing quite legally in the sense of, you know, brokering a deal between Yanukovych and the, uh, you know, the, the, the opposition. And I think part of it was that they were discussing, like, which members of the opposition should, should have a role in the new government. So that was, again, I mean, that was a, like some sort of, uh, you know, backhanded entry. That was, uh, again, part of what they were doing quite legally. Uh, but it was something that, you know, the, that Putin and, you know, the Russians and, you know, a lot of other people uh, certainly used to um, push this sort of trope that what was happening in Ukraine was a U.S.-sponsored coup. And ironically, you see that, claim being recycled a lot today by people, you know, including conservatives who are saying that, you know, like, wait a minute, maybe we really shouldn't be on Ukraine's side. And maybe, like, maybe it's, um, uh, you know, maybe this whole thing is happening in part because, you know, Putin knew that the government, like the new government of Ukraine had been installed by a U.S. sponsored coup, which kind of suggests that, you know, this is an illegitimate government and that, you know, maybe Putin really, really isn't so much in the wrong, but that really wasn't what, uh, what happened. So. Yeah. There's, there's, there's many people taking the angle on all of this history 
where they basically ask you to look at all of this from Putin's point of view and from the Russian right. point of view, starting with, uh, you know, Bill Clinton admitting Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic to NATO in the 90s right. when there was no, it was not clear there was any serious threat of Russian aggression to those countries at that time. And this being, this being the beginning of a series of insults to Putin and to Russia that would have had the understandable long-term backlash that we're seeing today. And, and you can add uh, the bombing of Serbia, which was not approved by the UN in, in the late 90s, as, right. as uh, another example of Putin feeling what, what just to him may have just looked like American aggression and American quasi-imperialism. And then you right. add promising NATO membership to uh, to Ukraine and to Georgia uh, during the Bush administration to this, and uh, right. so so what do you make of the of the whole species yeah. of argument that we have to look at this from Putin's Putin doesn't look as crazy when you <laughs> add up all of these sort of American insults? Right. Well, I mean, I guess one thing that I would ask is like, are we? It was the, the, the argument is usually that. Putin is right to consider NATO to be a security threat. Uh, now, one thing, you know, I kind of want to backtrack because one, uh, one, inf- one kind of amusing thing that I saw the other day, like somebody put up a graphic uh, where they had, like it was one of those animated maps where they showed the expansion of the sort of NATO zone to, to show that, you know, oh, Putin has a really good reason to be, or had a really good reason to be worried because, you know, look at NATO kind of creeping up to, uh, you know, closer and closer to Russian borders. And they were using like the color blue to, to, to indicate, you know, like deep blue for countries that were actually in NATO and a lighter blue for countries that were a part of NATO's uh, Partnership for Peace program which, you know, Ukraine and Georgia became a part of in the 1990s. Well, here's the interesting thing. Like, if you're going to put that color blue on countries that were part of the Partnership for Peace, you actually have to, to, to include Russia in that. So, you know, Russia was like the, the supposedly like insidious uh, Partnership for Peace program that was like, again, supposedly a way to uh, you know, pull all these countries into NATO's orbit uh, and, you know, threaten Russia. Russia was a part of that. Like Russia was, uh, at the time, this is during the 1990s, was very interested in working together with NATO. And again, yeah, I, I mean, I do agree that the Serbia, the uh, bombing of Serbia um, sort of made a difference there and I think made Russia uh, sort of less uh, NATO, uh, NATO friendly. And I think it wasn't even so much that uh, it wasn't approved by the UN. I think Russia felt that it wasn't properly consulted. So, yeah, that was, uh, and, you know, I'm not going to, like, rehash the entire history of that, but I just want to point out that, yeah, that did create difficulties. Uh, But even so, you know, Russia was part of uh, first the Partnership for Peace, and then it was part of this uh, uh, structure called the Russian NATO Council, which actually existed like until uh, 2014 when the annexation of Crimea took place and things got really tense between Russia and the West. But like until then, uh, Russia had been a part of the structure in which it was working with NATO, 
which, you know, was doing, and they were working on a variety of security issues. And among other things, uh, you know, NATO was, uh, was uh, helping find employment even for some decommissioned officers from Russia. So they, I mean, like they were, you know, this, this was really not, you know, a, a, a case where NATO was just consistently doing all these anti-Russian things. Uh, it, there was, by the way, at various points, Yeltsin and I think at one point even Putin had raised the possibility that Russia itself could join NATO, which, you know, certainly, uh, you know, would have been interesting. And there are people who believe that the West really made a mistake in not pursuing that. And that, you know, there should have been more encouragement for Russia to sort of integrate into the security structures led by the West. And the problem is that, you know, in spite of making these, you know, sort of pro-NATO uh, noises, Russia was never really sure. And I think this had to do with there being different forces within Russia itself. Uh, but the Russian leadership would really remain like even in the Yeltsin era always remained ambivalent on whether it actually wanted to be integrated into the security structures that were led by the West and, you know, de facto by the United States, or whether they wanted to be, like, still wanted to be the other superpower and the, 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 this other, like, pole in, the, in a multipolar, uh, you know, world of different spheres of influence. Uh, so I think because of that, I mean, I don't think it's just the West's fault that Russia was not, like, was not integrated into uh, the, the, the existing security order or, or even didn't, you know, join NATO because Russia was never really entirely on board with the NATO, uh, with, with like, the, the agenda that NATO had and the agenda that the West had. So, you know, I don't think that, uh, I mean, were there mistakes that were made by the West? You know, I have no doubt that there were. I mean, you know, people are not perfect. But I think the, um, the, the blame, like, and especially in terms of um, the, the, the admission of these different countries, uh, including Poland uh, and, and the Baltics to NATO, I mean, I think we see in retrospect that they really did have good reason to to fear Russian aggression. I think they were aware of, you know, forces within Russia that never really made peace with the loss of the empire. And I think they they really did, did have solid reasons to be nervous about that. And, you know, I think that um, in terms of NATO being a threat to Russia, I mean, I think it's interesting that you formulated in terms of, you know, insult rather than threat. And I think that's how uh, I, I think it was largely seen, because uh, I don't think, uh, you know, th this idea that NATO posed an actual security threat. I mean, we're seeing actually right now that even in, in this situation where, you know, there's, you know, really like very, very uh, blatant Russian aggression, NATO really doesn't want to do anything that would put it directly into conflict with Russia. And the reason for that, of course, is that Russia has all these nuclear weapons, which it has always had. And I think that there, there was a very interesting article that, um, that was written in 2008 after the war in Georgia by a, a guy named, I forget his first name, but Vladimir, I think it's Vladimir Dvorkin, 
who was uh, at one point, a, a, he was a general and at one point a Russian negotiator in the, you know, in the arms talks. And he basically said, you know, everyone knows that NATO doesn't really pose a security threat to Russia because given Russia's nuclear arsenal, it's just unthinkable that, you know, NATO would try to go to war against it or, or you know, that NATO countries would try to invade it. And he basically said, you know, the, the threat that NATO poses to the Putin regime is really not military, but sort of cultural because, uh, you know, and this was written in a spirit that was critical, because Putin is really afraid that if these other countries near Russia continue to liberalize and modernize and incorporate it themselves into the world of liberal democracies, that is going to be a kind of destabilizing influence, as far as Putin is concerned, within Russia, because it's going to kind of show people that uh, this pro-Western model really works. And I think that was the, uh, the, the one thing that he didn't want happening. And I think uh, in terms of the insult, I mean, I think the insult really is that, you know, Putin believes that neighboring countries should be Russia's uh, vassal states. And I mean, if you believe that not having your neighbors in this kind of vassal state condition is an insult to your dignity as a nation, you know, then of course you're going to be a danger to the nations around you because you're essentially wanting to keep them under your uh, under your boot uh, to some extent. And so, I'm not really sure why we should go along with that. Yeah, to, to me it seems like this exercise in taking Putin's perspective starting from the 90s on to now in order to understand understand it from his point of view, it's, it's all well and good. But I think the lesson of shows like The Sopranos and, and Breaking Bad right. that you know humans have this kind of hack where if you look at someone's life from their perspective for long enough, if you right. just inhabit their first person perspectives, mm-hmm. yeah. you can be made to feel sympathy for oh, sure, the yeah. worst yeah. kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And at of the course. end of the day, this is a war of aggression, yeah. um, an unprovoked yeah, war of aggression where Putin is, you know, is bombing civilians. He is yeah, bombing exactly. apartment exactly. buildings and hospitals. And, you know, none of the perspective taking in the world is obscures that basic moral horror. Right. Oh, absolutely. And again, you know, just to, to I just wanted to add in terms of this alleged, you know, NATO threat to Russia. Again, the Russian NATO Council, one of its provisions was that Russia was able to bring to the leadership of NATO any security concerns that it had about anything that NATO was doing. So it's not like, you know, there was this total disregard for Russia's security interest. Again, the Russia, there were existing structures that allowed Russia to bring its security concerns to NATO. And, you know, and Russia was working with NATO on um, on the presence in Afghanistan. I mean, Russia was allowing NATO to use to use its bases, uh, you know, until eventually things started getting sour. So this idea that Russia was, uh, you know, correct to regard NATO as this implacable enemy threat, it, it just really doesn't wash. It doesn't really uh even compute in terms of like russia's own behavior in 
in other areas. So I think this isn't so much. And also, you know, again, look, uh, the, the, the conditions that Putin supposedly, like, yeah, and I don't know if that's been absolutely confirmed, but like the, the deal that Russia initially offered Ukraine, like in the uh, peace negotiations, it wasn't just like the conditions that they tried to impose was not just that Ukraine can't join NATO, but that it can't join the EU. And I think that is really telling. It's not about the military threat so much as it is about this, the, uh, well, I don't want to say clash of civilizations because, you know, that sounds a little too pompous, but it's like, you know, Russia wants to be the leader of its own kind of, you know, sphere of influence, so to speak. And I think the, the, the during the Putin years, I, I think there really did um, sort of come to be this belief in among the Russian elite that the, the place that Russia should carve out for itself is uh, as the, the leader of this um, sort of really civilizational challenge to the West, like Russia is the anti-West. And I, I think the, the anti-liberal position is very much a part of that. And it's interesting that Russia has been cultivating all these ultra-right traditionalist movements in the West and trying to project this image, which I think a lot of people on the American right have been sort of buying into, that, you know, Putin is like the great traditionalist hope that, you know, he is the leader of these uh, culturally conservative forces that are arrayed against, uh, you know, wokeness and LGBT uh, movements and whatnot. And, uh, And I think, and again, the strategy, this is something that, the Russian elites, uh, the, the, you know, the, the pro-Putin elites are deliberately cultivating. So it's, this perception is not just something that came about spontaneously. And, uh, you know, of course, what people don't realize is that Russia is also simultaneously cultivating a lot of far left. Uh, so really, it's, it's kind of fascinating because at a certain point, they really started like building up, if you look at what they've been doing internationally, they've been cultivating the sort of anti-liberal international, so to speak, where they're, they're working with all of these like far right and far left groups, ranging from communist to fascist, actually. And the, uh, the only thing that they have in common is that they're against liberal democracy and they're against the sort of, you know, liberal international order. And uh, And, uh, one thing that's interesting is that he, at the same time, he champions this anti-liberal point of view and partners with fascists or Mm quasi-fascists. He justifies the, quote, special operation in Ukraine on the basis of Mm -hmm. Ukraine's being controlled by an allegedly Nazi regime that he has to liberate the poor Ukrainians from. Essentially, right, Zelensky, right. the Jew, Nazi is somehow with the Nazi. Jewish president. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting because that was again that was from the beginning, uh, like from 2014 during the Revolution of Dignity. That was the that was one of the kind of light motifs of the Kremlin propaganda. And it was kind of ironic, really, because like the two big things uh, in in um, in Kremlin propaganda about Ukraine 
is like one uh like this whole thing like this the this revolution is really like a neo-nazi coup and the other thing is like it's totally dominated by the gays so it's like i mean these two generally do not go very well together like couldn't couldn't it have been gay nazis i don't know like yeah all those gay nazis (laughs) yeah gay and jewish nazis you know that's even better right <laughs> yeah uh no, but see, here's the thing there's there's a kernel of truth in that you know the the sort of the anti-kremlin you know the uh like the 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 pro like national sovereignty movements in ukraine do include a fairly small but you know sometimes very visible um kind of cotter of uh you know people who i don't know if they're actual neo-nazis but i mean they do have some you know they're like extreme nationalists who do have some in some cases neo-nazi overtones who in some cases have engaged in like racist and anti-semitic rhetoric i think there's uh i mean i think that the the, the movement like the maidan the hero maidan movement was very very careful to not allow that to like to uh, be a part of what was happening in their activism. Like at one point there was, uh, like when, when the protests began uh, in 2013, that eventually led to, to this revolution. There was one incident that, you know, got a lot of coverage where a woman who was, uh, you know, who, a, a Ukrainian nationalist poet uh, whose name was Diana Kamluk took the microphone at this like open mic event and uh, read a poem that was like deeply racist and anti-Semitic. It was, you know, let's have a new Ukraine cleansed of, you know, Jews and minorities. And and I think it also transpired that she had actually served prison time for a gang attack on an African student in Ukraine. So like, this is a bad person. You know, Mm. this is a a genuinely bad person. And, you know, the thing is that the leadership of the uh, of these democracy groups apologized for that and basically said, yeah, like we consider that to be a completely unacceptable incident. Mm. And they gave like to 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 counteract that they they had the um, I, I think like Ukraine's chief rabbi or I'm sorry, not the chief rabbi, but like the guy who was the head of. Uh, like the, the the principal Jewish organization, like the principal Jewish community organization, like the Federation of Jewish Communities of Ukraine or something, Joseph Zissels. He, like, they, they had him on the podium to speak to the crowd to counteract that anti-Semitic and racist incident that had happened before and to show that this was, you know, this revolution was not, you know, not in any sense neo-Nazi. And yeah, like Jewish, the Jewish communities have been very, very prominent in their support for for uh, this, uh, uh, you know, uh, for this government. And um, so the Nazi idea is really ridiculous. Uh, there's there's a very complicated history, and again, you know, I don't want to go into all of that because otherwise, well, you know, we we could end up having this discussion for a few hours. There's a complicated history where there are people. Uh, like historical figures who are kind of regarded as national heroes by like the pro-independence uh, sort of contingent by the, you know, by the, uh, you know, including by people in the, in the current government. 
some of these like national heroes uh, that are being sort of enshrined are World War II era Ukrainian nationalists who had a very, very complicated history in terms of like what they did during the war. Because like they were they were people who were fighting for Ukraine's independence, who basically saw the German invasion as an opportunity to fight against you know the Russian communist domination of Ukraine. Uh, some of them very sort of consciously fought against like both the Germans and the Russians. Some of there were people who did end up collaborating with the Germans and who probably where, you know, almost certainly took part in atrocities against the Ukraine's Jewish population. So there's this very complicated history of, you know, do we remember those people as pro-independence fighters? You know, should we commemorate them as national heroes? You know, considering that some of them did collaborate with the Germans and some of them were implicated in, in these atrocities. And, you know, those are, this is a hugely complicated issue, but, you know, as some people have pointed out, Russia has its own battles around whom to commemorate. And, you know, the Putin regime, in a very real sense, has presided over a sort of re, uh, you know, rehabilitation of Stalin uh, as as a national hero because of his um, role in the victory in World War II. So I mean, if you're gonna, if we're gonna get into these debates about, do, do you, know, you know, does this country look up to some bad people in in the context of uh, you know celebrating its history and national identity? That's a whole other complicated issue, and I think you know one could criticize some of the decisions that have been made by the current by Ukraine's current government. But I mean, that doesn't that really doesn't make them neo-Nazis. I mean, you know, it would be kind of like to give you this like, this American analogy. Like until recently, we had a Jefferson Davis Highway in uh, you know in Virginia. Now, is does that mean that like for the entire duration of that time, like Virginia was a neo-Confederate state? I think that would be really quite an exaggeration. Right. You know, to say that, although I'm sure there are some people on the left who would say exactly that, but I mean, I think that would be a very substantial overreach. So, you know, in that sense, I mean, yeah, like Kiev currently has a Stepan Bandera Avenue. And if you look at the history of Stepan Bandera, I think it's fairly safe to say he was like not very clearly like a good guy. I mean, he was someone who for a while was in a German prison camp, but also someone who at various times did collaborate with the Nazis. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's you know, as, as we would say in American social justice, of course, problematic. But I mean, a lot of countries have a kind of problematic in, history. Including Russia. In, including Russia. Heroes. Most yeah, relevantly, of course. Of course. Know, how, how many Russian heroes that are looked up to that have streets named after them have oh, more than dubious yeah. histories. And, and you don't see that as justification to invade. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's certainly not. And it's certainly yeah. not an excuse to, you know, label Ukraine's leadership as neo-Nazi. Right. That's really- so w- w- there is an angle, there is a sort of Chomsky type angle that some are taking at the moment. I would say Russell Brand is someone who is really beating this drum right now. The, the, uh-huh very popular podcaster. Right. Which is, I mean, the, it, what it boils down to is 
every principle that Putin is violating are all principles that we've happily violated in, in recent uh-huh. memory. So like, you know, an unjust war of aggression, Iraq is, is arguably right. that um, self-interested regime changes all over Latin America. We've propped up horrible dictators in the name of fighting communism, uh, war crimes, you know, the war crimes of Vietnam, uh, right. torture during the Iraq war, uh, wartime, you know, war on false pretenses, right? WMDs in Iraq and Iraq has something to do with Al Qaeda. And therefore, who are we to really say out of one side of our mouths that Putin is the most evil person ever when we've done, you know, more or less, or we've violated every principle he's violated. So what do you make of that? That kind of yeah, you know, I actually want one thing that I really want to write, and I'm probably going to write it next week. I really want to do a piece about these, uh, you know, Iraq comparisons. I, I do want to say from the outset. I mean, I was not like a big cheerleader for the war in Iraq. I mean, I went back recently and looked at what I wrote, like at the beginning of the war, and I was very, very um, kind of on the fence about it. And I thought, you know, this idea that we're going to go in and like build somehow, you know, turn Iraq into this model democracy just really struck me like from the beginning as very iffy. Like, what makes you think that that is going to happen? <laughs> you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I, again, just to reiterate, I am really not like someone who is coming at this from a you know cheerleader for the war in Iraq you know point of view. Uh, but I really think that it is uh, very, very um, kind of uh, misleading to compare the two. I mean. First of all, I mean, there actually is a debate about the legality of the war in Iraq, although I think the consensus is that it was illegal because, you know, the UN didn't give, it, give its approval. But, you know, let us not forget, Iraq was in violation of a whole bunch of, like, I forget, like seven, I think, UN resolutions where, you know, they were not allowing WMD inspections. Uh, you know, this didn't just happen because, you know, the U.S. said, oh, let's just, you know, go in and do this. I mean, the Iraq was under sanctions. And by the way, you know, there, there, there's this whole other line of argument because a lot of people on the left were also arguing at the time that the sanctions were killing like half a million people a year in Iraq, which I'm not even sure is the case. But actually, if that was the case, then probably like the war didn't kill as many people as the sanctions, you know, which were approved by the UN. So, you know, it, it, it's sort of something to something to think about. Um, the, uh, the the U.S. actually did go to the UN and try to get approval for the war in Iraq. Like we brought a case and we know now that a lot of that rested on bad information, whether the Bush administration actually believed that information themselves or were consciously lying about it. I don't know. I mean, there was certainly some, you know, motivated reasoning. I don't think anyone really doubts that. But I mean, they did try to go, you know, the legal route and make a case to the UN. And when that didn't work, the the US did at the very least like build a coalition. Like we had a coalition that had that had the UK, that had Australia, that had a whole bunch of you know other you know smaller countries. So we didn't just like single-handedly like go in with our troops and uh, you know and act completely on our own with no EU. Because you know Russia didn't. I mean, if Russia had these concerns that they now claim they had about the government of Ukraine terrorizing people in eastern Ukraine, 
And I mean, that's a whole other uh, subject that we could get into, because I think you really could make a very good case that, you know, if anyone was terrorizing the residents of eastern Ukraine, it was these separatist gangs that were installed there by, by, by Russia. Uh, in 2014, at the same time that they annexed Crimea. Uh, but, you know, where was uh, even like an attempt by Russia to go to the UN and say, we really want to act because, you know, here are these people who are being terrorized and destroyed by the Ukrainian government. I mean, they never tried to do that. They never even like tried to pursue any kind of legal avenue. Uh, I mean, so I, I think the comparison, it really, really doesn't make any sense. Also, you know, uh, the U.S. was not trying to annex Iraq. Um, I mean, we didn't even uh, pursue the the sort of agenda of installing uh, like an obedient puppet government because, you know, the government that ended up coming to power in Iraq, uh, uh, you know, after the American occupation, was one that was sufficiently independent that they wouldn't even let the U.S. keep a presence there after we withdrew, because we tried to, you know, under Obama, the U.S. tried to work out a deal where we would be allowed to keep a certain number of troops there. And I think the conditions that were imposed by the government of Iraq were such that, you know, that deal didn't happen. Uh, So, you know, we certainly, we didn't go in there to annex Iraq. We didn't go in there to steal their oil. You know, we didn't go in there to install a puppet government. There's all sorts of other really bad comparisons. And again, you know, this is not to say that the war in Iraq was a good thing. I mean, I I think it's fairly clear that it was, uh, you know, it had overall bad consequences. Um, But you know, when, when people say that, and I, I know that, um, you know, Candace Owens uh, said this on, on Twitter the other day that, oh, well, why could we go into Iraq and, you know, slaughter like hundreds of thousands of people? Well, we didn't actually slaughter hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq. We, I mean, the, the casualties, I don't know the exact number of casualties from the U.S., like U.S. military actions per se. But like the vast, vast majority of, uh, majority of Iraqis who died during the war in Iraq died at the hands of the insurgency and died at the hands of the you know, sectarian warfare that erupted uh, as a result of the insurgency. Now, can you say that the U.S. bears you know, some, you know, a fair amount of moral responsibility for that because you know, we went in and ousted the, the Saddam Hussein regime? Uh, yeah, I think you can make that case, certainly. And at the same time, I mean, you know, the Saddam Hussein regime really was this incredibly evil regime. And I mean, the, the thing that is that is interesting to me, like if you look at the polls that were done for over a number of years in Iraq, uh, it is true, by the way, that initially, at least, uh, the majority of Iraqis welcomed the, U- the, the U.S. troops as liberators. I mean, that is a fact. And I mean, obviously, things didn't turn out so well, you know, after that. And I think it's extremely difficult to, like, even if you had, even if you have, like, really good intentions, I think to maintain an occupation in a country with a very different culture, with a different religion, with with a population that really doesn't have the same, like, outlook on many things, the same cultural norms, uh, it's extremely difficult. And of course, there's, there's going to be, you know, a lot of hostilities and tensions. And, you know, it is very difficult for an occupying army to 
you know, maintain order in in a um, country with again like a different culture, a different language, etc., and not you know eventually come to be perceived as the enemy. So again, I'm not justifying the occupation. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but if you look at the polls, and that's kind of remarkable, you find that like after like a number of years after the invasion. Uh, there was a, there were these interesting sort of paradoxes where even as the majority of Iraqis said they didn't want the U.S. Army there, like now, like if you ask them, you know, should the Americans leave? Uh, yeah, they're going to say, you know, like uh, by that time, by like 2008, 2009, a vast majority of them were saying, yes, we don't want the Americans here. But. The one question that is that that has always been fascinating to me, like if you ask, uh, like all in all, like even considering like all of the hardships that have happened, do you think that the ouster of Saddam Hussein was worth it? And you actually find that approximately, as I recall, seventy to like seventy-five percent of the population would actually say yes. Now, again, does that mean that they approved of the Americans being there? No. But it's, you know, people are complicated, you know, their opinions are complicated. But I mean, I think all of these are really complicating factors when we look at the war in Iraq, that we really did oust an incredibly evil dictator. And I mean, how things would have developed if we hadn't gone in, I mean, you know, it's very difficult to do counterfactuals, but it's at the very least conceivable that, you know, if some sort of, you know, some form of Arab Spring, you know, had still happened without the American invasion, and if Iraqis had tried to overthrow Saddam themselves, uh, it's entirely possible that there would have been a bloodbath, you know, far bigger than what happened in the aftermath of the war. So, I mean, I really think that for all that one can certainly criticize, you know, a lot of things that the Americans did, you know, in that context. And I think, you know, it was in terms of international law, I do think it was a very bad precedent. And just from that standpoint alone, I agree that it should not have been done. But were we, was it like remotely the same as the the, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan where, you know, they don't have, you know, they haven't, they don't have, they didn't even manage to build a coalition with Belarus, ultimately, you know, they initially tried. And, um, and that's, by the way, a very interesting thing, because they initially uh, Belarus apparently was going to send troops. And uh, the, the story that I've seen is that uh, basically the, the the troops in Belarus just basically refused to go. Like a lot of the senior officers resigned rather than participate in this war. So, you know, that's kind of a side, uh, <laughs> a slight digression. Uh, so, you know, it is really not like in any meaningful sense, you know, like the war in Iraq. Uh, did the U.S. do bad things during the Cold War uh, when both the U.S. and and the Soviet Union were using third world countries as proxies, essentially? Yeah, I mean, there, there were, uh, the, the, this was something that was, you know, this was a sort of geostrategic game that was being played by both sides. And unfortunately, I agree, you know, the U.S. certainly did some things that were very, very, you know, morally due during that period. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get into this whole, you know, well, what the Soviets were doing was even worse, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, moral equation. 
uh, because, you know, I don't think that, uh, you know, the end justifies the means. But again, I mean, I do think that it's something that needs to be seen in the context of its own era. And And it also needs to be seen, I think, in the context of the worlds that each side wants wanted to build. It's like, you, oh, you, of course. Uh, yeah. you, you, you tell the world, you, you tell everyone the world you want to build in your sphere of influence by showing them right. what it's like in your own country. It's like, right. you know, say what you want about the worst offenses, uh, during the war in Iraq, but what it's like to be a Russian right now with any hint of free thinking in your body, it's like, there's been an exodus of Russians. Oh yeah, absolutely. Places like in Istanbul, um, where they can, you know, journalists, I mean, to, to speak freely and, um, you know, 15 year penalty, uh, jail time oh, yeah. for yeah. anyone who says anything about the war that isn't Kremlin propaganda. Right. And it's like, it's and like, okay, I point mean, to that. Where's the analog to that in, in America? Oh yeah. 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 And I mean, I know that like, uh, like Glenn Greenwald, for instance, you know, uh, like one of his sort of hobby horses is that, oh, well, there was a tremendous amount of pressure in the U.S. during the Iraq war, you know, on people who weren't, you know, on board with, uh, you know, with the war. And yeah, I mean, I agree, actually, that at the time there was an atmosphere of um, kind of group think that that was a definite problem yeah and you know i i do agree that there was too much pressure on journalists to kind of toe the line uh with regard to the war but i mean it's nowhere near i mean you know the, there were people who openly criticized the war mm-hmm. uh and yeah i mean phil donahue i think eventually got a show on msnbc canceled uh because i mean i don't even think that it was like because People wanted, you know, that he was being punished for opposing the war. It was more that there wasn't a whole lot of demand at that point for, you know, what he was doing. And, you know, he had very low ratings, uh, as I recall. And he did get a show canceled. I mean, I will say, like, there there were things that I think were definitely, um, like, not okay. Like, the extent to which um, the Dixie Chicks um were uh, you know were facing this massive backlash where it's the, the, like there were DJs who actually got fired for playing music by the Dixie Chicks mm-hmm. uh this is after they criticized George W Bush you know at a at a concert in London and i think you know i mean that was really i think one of the worst examples of like cancel culture on the right and and i think we yeah and, and we're, we're facing another silly problem with cancel culture right now of canceling russians or anything oh god yeah, russians. yeah. Like netflix is suspending its production of anna karenina yeah that is that that's is helping ukrainians all it's doing is giving you know giving putin and the kremlin more things to point to about how oh, people irrationally yeah, yeah. No, that's, russians that, that, that's absolutely jack yeah. squat for for ukrainians yeah yeah yeah, and I mean the one example, and uh, the, where I would say that there's that there is some justification, like the uh, the, the conductor Valery Gergiev, who who had his um, um, basically, you know, had his um, his uh, contract terminated uh, at a couple of uh, large orchestras in Europe. One is the the Munich Philharmonic, and I forget, I think the other one is in the Netherlands. Uh, this is a guy who actually is like, you know, an active part of Putin's propaganda machine. 
So, I mean, I could see how in his case, you could say, yeah, like, I don't really care that you're a, you know, very good conductor, but like, you're basically, you know. uh, he, He was one of my favorite conductors, probably my only favorite conductor as a child back when I was really into classical music. Yeah. Because he was conducting the London Symphony Orchestra at the time. Ah, I see. Which had this right, whole well, you know, outreach on YouTube <laughs> to young musicians. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I had no idea he was uh, yeah, so implicated yeah. in, in Putin's network. Yeah, he's, he, he, yeah, like, he's, he, like, he really is a kind of hardcore, you know, Putin propagandist, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, this is one, uh, I mean, he is, like, like, the one instance, I think, where I really do believe that they, uh, the, the the backlash was justified, but there were ridiculous things like this. Uh, this young kid, you know, he, who was like twenty one, um, Malafe. I'm like, I'm suddenly blanking out on his first name, but he's a pianist who was uh, scheduled to play in Toronto, um, and apparently there some people were upset about like the mere fact that a Russian guy, a Russian pianist, was on the program, and he had actually condemned like. Uh, I think in uh, in his social media accounts, he had actually spoken out against the war, uh, and and said that he believes that it needs to end. And uh, yeah, there've been Russian chess players. I, I don't know if it was um, uh, who, who exactly it was, but there have been several Russian chess players that who've spoken out against this, and nevertheless, yeah, and I think disinvited from. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Like it takes some guts for them to do that, and still yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, and I really do feel bad for them because, yeah, it really does take does take a lot of a lot of courage. So, yeah, I mean, that's I think um, that's pretty unfortunate. I mean, you know, it does happen almost always when there was a moment of like fervor and backlash against a country that is seen and you know quite rightly in this case as an aggressor. I mean, you know, if you look at what was happening in this country and in uh, some European countries at the beginning of World War One toward the German community, uh, it was pretty bad. I mean, you know, it was way, way worse than anything we're seeing today. Like, mm. with uh, there were like street mob attacks on German shop owners and that sort yeah. of thing. And you know, and I think at the time, by the way, a lot of like German Americans changed their names so that, mm-hmm. you know, if you were, if your name was Schmidt, like you just, you know, very rapidly became Smith overnight. Right, you know? right. And, and there were just, you know, really ugly things. And, and I think we've seen a little bit of that now. Like we've seen, like the, the, there have been a few like Russian restaurants that have had their windows smashed and things. And, you know, and that's especially ridiculous, by the way, because the, the, the Russian, I mean, first of all, the Russian uh, immigrant community here, I would say, really strongly opposes the war, uh, you know, by, you know, by a really vast margin. Mm-hmm. But also the, the Russian community in America is very often kind of intermingled with the Ukrainians. And a lot of the like a lot of the Russian shops and restaurants you know, in some cases, I, I remember reading that like this one restaurant that was vandalized, like half their staff were actually Ukrainian. Mm. So, you know, yeah. it's like this completely mindless backlash where you, you believe you're punishing people who are somehow associated with this, you know, aggression, but you're actually punishing the people that you're supposedly standing up for. So, yeah. you know, that's, uh, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I want to end our conversation by talking about what 
the U.S. and the West should do in the face of all of this. Oh my goodness! Um, so, wow. so there is, um, I mean, there, there is. I heard Gary Kasparov's conversation with Sam Harris from last week, and Gary, his his take on this was that. You know, in the past 20 years, the longer we've waited to intervene against right. Putin, the higher the cost has gotten. And he, he yeah, believes I, I the longer we wait, yeah. it's only going to get harder and harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And that Putin, th- there's nothing, I mean, the implication of what he said, I'm not exactly sure he said it explicitly, but the implication is why would, why would Putin stop at Ukraine, right? If he were to <laughs> occupy right. Ukraine... Uh, there, there's no difference for him between, say, Ukraine and and, and the Baltics, right? Um, no, so, I like, and then this, uh, I'm not really sure. I, I, I agree with this because it, for one, well, it seems I don't like know Ukraine if Putin is, really has the strength to. I mean, like, even without any intervention on the part of the West, I mean, we've sort of seen that the Russian army hasn't been doing that great <laughs> in in Ukraine, right? And the idea that they could conquer Ukraine and then execute some kind of triumphant, you know, march through the Baltics and Eastern Europe really doesn't seem very realistic, you know, considering the condition of which we're now seeing of the Russian armed forces. So, I mean, this idea that that Russia could be some sort of, you know, a threat on a par with like Nazi Germany in the 1930s really doesn't seem very plausible to me. On the other hand, you know, I really do think, I mean, in terms of Putin's intent, I absolutely do believe that if he could, you know, he would reconstitute, uh, you know, the, 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 the Russian Empire and, you know, maybe the Soviet bloc in some form. Um, you know, does, the, the question is, does he have the capacity? And I think the answer to that is clearly no. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take him take him seriously as you know a menace to security in Europe. Um, in terms of um, you know what should we do now? I mean, it's kind of a wrenching situation, really, because we are seeing this you know these horrible visuals unfolding of before our eyes of people being bombed and blown to bits and. And we're seeing this in a very immediate way that we didn't, for instance, during World War II, when, you know, everybody and their sister didn't have a smartphone that they could use to, you know, film these scenes of destruction and immediately put them online. Uh, So I think that uh, it really creates a lot of pressure, you know, for the West to like do something. Uh, I don't know how much we could do, uh, like even because I, I, I've seen the argument, and of course the the no flying zone is like the big uh, the big issue that I mean that's the one request that Ukraine has been making, mm-hmm. and I have seen like I'm not a military expert, I'll say from the outset, I have seen arguments that people have made that like even if we did uh, resolve to to like impose a no-fly zone, it would be really difficult to maintain over a territory as large as Ukraine, because Ukraine mm-hmm. is a very large, I mean, it's like, you know, we're not talking about like a small, uh, like, if we're talking about like Serbia, for instance, 
it was easy enough to maintain a no-fly zone over Serbia, which you know has a pretty small territory. In Ukraine, it would be like a much, much bigger challenge. And of course, you know, there is this uh, this problem that it would really put on us put us on a direct collision course with Russia. And of course, everyone inevitably thinks about the possibility of nuclear war. And that's something that and I know that I think Gary Kasparov has made a pretty solid case that, you know, nuclear war isn't going to happen. But I mean, this is where you think. Yeah, well, I mean, his, you know, his, if it's his like view a, is that we're already in World War Three. It's already started, whether we realize it or not. So the question is just whether to intervene now when the price is lower than it will be later. And I, yeah, that's I, the I, argument that Gary makes. That's right? the argument he makes. I don't yeah. find it compelling. I think. I also find it compelling. But Sorry, no, I mean, I'm saying I don't. I don't find. Oh, you it don't compelling find it compelling. In oh, that, okay. In the sense that I think Ukraine is far more strategically important to Putin than any other territory, and that he's right. willing to go much further for Ukraine than he would be for any other territory. And so to, to like fund an insurgency in Ukraine um, might make the most sense. And, and I, I don't think it would, it's not crazy to think that Putin would stop a, after the occupation of, of Ukraine. Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, if Putin did, uh, again, leaving aside like the question of what his intentions are, I think that if the Russians do manage to, um, take over Ukraine, which at this point is looking kind of increasingly dubious, I think, that they will even succeed in, like, taking control of the entire country and, you know, like, forcing the government into exile, I think it's pretty clear that they're going to be faced with a with an insurgency that will continue, you know, possibly indefinitely. So I certainly don't think that they're going to have the troops even, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that if Putin could do anything he wanted, like, you know, if you could get the, the magic lamp with a genie and, like, you know, get whatever wishes, get all of his wishes granted. Yeah, I'm sure he would love to, like, conquer Ukraine and then, you know, move on and conquer the Baltics and, you know, and possibly even Poland. Yeah, why not? I mean, he definitely, very definitely nostalgic for both the Soviet Union and the old Russian empire. And I think, you know, at least, I mean, I don't know if he's personally nostalgic for them. I think ideologically, that's sort of the uh, the uh, persona that he's carved out for himself. Like he's the, you know, restorer, uh, he's the restorer of, you know, Russian empire, essentially. And, you know, would he like to, um, uh, to get all of those uh, territories back? Sure. But I mean, like, again, like if he did succeed in conquering Ukraine and, you know, and then to to go on and conquer Poland, like with what? Because, you know, because first of all, like even if he even if Ukraine was occupied, like the troops would be needed to maintain the occupation, because otherwise the moment your army moves on to conquer Poland, you've got the Ukrainians taking their country back. And, you right. know, that's so I mean, I don't think that there's a there's any kind of realistic chance of, uh, you know, Putin uh, using this as a launch pad to some sort of massive conquest of Eastern Europe, because again, you know, he doesn't have the means. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, you know, I will say that the one thing that is um, 
that sort of worries me is if we send Putin a signal that, you know, we're so afraid of countering him uh, because it might lead to nuclear war, that might actually, like, I think, create a situation where he would, he could make demands that that would create like, really, really serious problems. Uh, right. So I, yeah. think there's, and, there, there, I, I, I think this is, this is a really, really um, kind of terrible dilemma that, that I think we have because it, it is, what, it is because the, the nuclear deterrent, especially because like, obviously no one wants to start, uh, no one wants a nuclear exchange with Russia. Right. right? But if, if we're only going to obey that principle, then what right. would there be to stop Putin from simply marching into NATO uh, allied territory and just right. saying, well, you, you're going to avoid nuclear war at all costs, right? Well, the politics yeah. are mine. Poland is yeah. mine, right. Yeah. So like, presumably there would be a point past which yeah. we, we would have to violate that principle of, of avoiding a potential nuclear exchange in order to Right, right, because you know, then you know, theoretically, he doesn't even need a conventional army. He could just yeah. say, "Okay, he just so, snap his fingers." <laughs> yeah. So, like, okay, so tomorrow the government of Poland resigns and I install a new one, or we're gonna have, you know, a war. Yeah. I'm gonna, you know, lob missiles at, you know, the European capitals. Right. Um, so, I mean, I really don't think that we can, uh, we can create this. The, we can turn the nuclear deterrent into a blackmail instrument. Mm, and I think right. that right now uh, we're kind of perilously close to that situation, I think, because I think, you know, Putin certainly knows that right now what he's doing, like even without Ukraine being a NATO, which, you know, which means that we don't have a legal obligation to come to its aid. Uh, he's still like sufficiently in violation of international law, and he's still like sufficiently in violation of just basic principles, of, like even the Geneva Convention. Because right now he's basically just indiscriminately shelling civilians. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, you know, the U.S. and you know other NATO countries, I think, really do have every you know moral um, justification. And just, you know, going in there and walloping the shit out of the Russian right. armed forces and just forcing them to turn back and stop killing civilians. And the only reason we're not doing that is because we don't want a nuclear exchange. Yeah. And I think that is a bad situation because it does really come pretty close to, you know, nuclear blackmail. Mm. And I think that is something that we're going to have to consider uh, you know, in the years to come. I mean, depending on what happens, of course, it's entirely possible that, you know, Putin is going to get ousted by his uh, own cronies. Because, uh, uh, you know, there's also that we haven't really discussed the sanctions, uh, which certainly add a very interesting layer of complications to all of this, because when we took, I mean, you know, should we regard the sanctions as part of World War III? I mean, Putin has made it pretty clear that he regards the sanctions uh, as an act of war. And I mean, really, these are sanctions that, that at this point are very clearly intended to yeah. like so literally maybe, bring Russia that, to but, its but knees. I mean, he says that, but I, I take that to be rhetoric. Like he, he would see military yeah. intervention as an escalation, right? So sanctions right. can't really be an act of war. 
Yeah, well, except I mean, it's think about it though. I mean, the sanctions are are very clearly intended to like break Russia, right? I mean, sure. that's what we're doing, right? Right. I mean, you know, it's kind of like. I mean, it's not the same thing as if we like bombed Russian infrastructure, but I mean, the effect may not be very different. I mean, we're kind of like blowing Russia's, uh, you know, blowing Russia's economy to bits in right. a sense without a single shot fired. Right, but so, I, if we if we did start dropping bombs, no, no, I, and, I, and I'm not, by the way, advocating bombing bombs. Just you know, to make but, but yeah, he he would call that an ex- escalation. Right. right. And, and right. like, there's no, there's nothing above an act of war. So I, I, I take no. that to be kind of rhetoric. No, it is rhetoric, but you know, but uh, I, I think that with uh, Putin, I think you kind of have to take the rhetoric seriously because mm. I mean, to what extent does he believe it? To what extent does he pretend to believe it? Like if, and of course the concern that everyone has is like, what happens if he, it gets genuinely desperate. What happens if he sees that he's losing the war and he's going to lose face to the point where it, uh, it's very likely that if he's seen as the loser in this war, he's going to get ousted or, you know, yeah. murdered or, you know, he has this, or, this official, know, handcuffed uh, and taken to the Hague. By he has this official own. doctrine of if he's losing, he reserves the right to use tactical nukes. Right. That's his official stated doctrine, uh, military doctrine. Right. Um, so that's something to worry about. I mean, you know, I, I think that is genuinely worrisome. And and I think that, um, you know, we are. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing that I really find interesting about this, by the way, is the extent to which the situation has sort of galvanized the West and um, kind of you know, whipped it back into shape, so to speak, and produced this unity where, you know, in in a sense, it's, it really does feel like a kind of throwback to the Cold War in that we're back to, like, the free world versus the, uh, well, it's not the communist world anymore, but it's basically like the authoritarian world. And I think that's, that is, I think, in a sense, like the really big news story of the, of uh, 2022 so far. Yeah. Like we're yeah. seeing the revival of, you know, the free world versus the unfree world. And I mean, yeah, in well, a way, it's kind of the, feels the one silver lining. Yeah. To, you know, the to one silver lining to this whole situation. Yeah. All right, Kathy Young, this has been a really good conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope people well, thank you, sir, and I. do as well. And uh, can you point my listeners in your direction? How can they support your work? How can they follow you on the internet, et cetera? Oh, sure. Yeah. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Kathy Young, C-A-T-H-Y-Y-U-N-G-6-3. I do have a Patreon account for, you know, various, you know, kind of minor expenses. And it's also Kathy Young 63 on Patreon. Um, As far as my work, um, uh, well, I have a website that hasn't been updated in ages, which I really need to, like, find someone who will do that for me. But I do have a website, kathyyoung.net, which has really my older work mostly. And then, you know, if you find me on Twitter, I'm sure you will find, you know, my newer work. Uh, my, like, my, my main two uh, publications right now are The Bulwark and Reason. But, you know, I do a lot of other, you know, stuff for different publications. 
So uh, this is where you can find me. Awesome. Thanks, Kathy. Okay. Thank you. It's been great. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.